Hello and welcome back to the Total Football Analysis Podcast. Last week we had Velez Chief Scout Lee Scott on, a TFA legend in his own regard, to discuss how to scout a player, things to look out for and how clubs operate their recruitment departments to ensure they sign the right players for the head coach and the team overall. We actually had a guest scheduled in for this week, but due to a personal issue, this has been put back until next week. But don't worry, because we actually have Mr. Reliable Lee Scott back this week to impart even more wisdom onto us all. I learned a lot last time out, and I'll certainly learn a lot this time around from Lee. In this episode, we will focus on how to identify the best young players in the world while looking at the importance of youth tournaments and even the cultural differences which need to be taken into account across the continents when scouting a player. Having worked at clubs such as Dundee United, Aberdeen and now Vélez Club de Football in Spain, Lee's knowledge of football is unmatched. So let's go and ask him some questions. I'm your host, Adam Scully. And I hope you all enjoyed the following episode. Before we begin, though, please make sure to rate the podcast. Five stars, if you would be so kind. It's greatly appreciated and it helps us to grow the podcast and to get more and more excellent guests on and to get more and more ears on the podcast, too. So now, without further ado, let's go speak to Lee. Lee, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast this week. How have you been? Yeah, I've been good. A whole seven days since we last talked, so yeah, it's still been a busy week, but um, things are starting to fall into place a little bit now for us going into the summer, so so all mm. positive despite results on the pitch not quite matching up. Yeah, seven days is a lifetime in TFA years. <laughs> uh, yeah, so last week we spoke about kind of how to scout players, scouting players in general, the recruitment process especially that you would have used a vet or Aberdeen and, and that you use a fellas. Obviously, we didn't really go into details about the players you're scouting, but that's obviously because we can't. But <laughs> this week, I want to kind of talk about youth football. You watch a lot of youth football. I believe on the Scouted Football podcast recently, you talked about, was it the South American on the 20s? Yeah, it was South America we covered. Um, I do. <clears throat> I, I tend more to watch. Nowadays, it's more big youth international tournaments that are on. So, mm-hmm. for example, um, the African under-20s have yeah. been on recently. Um, I've watched a few games from that already. I've got more in my workflow to watch. The Sudamericano was one. Uh, Mario, who used to work with TFA, mm-hmm. was actually out there um, for the second half of the tournament. It looked like quite a cool experience to go out and, and view it that way. Um, all the European and world ones as well I'll watch generally just to, to keep up the breast of who the players are and then at the UEFA Youth League as well um, tends to be on at quite convenient times the matches mm. so because I have two monitors I tend to have one on the second monitor while I'm working um, just to keep up to date with kind of the young players that are starting to break through the trends that are starting to, to emerge You're a big fan of tournament football anyway I've not, I've, I know you've said that a lot of times before why is that and it's not just youth football obviously I mean I know international football isn't your favourite but the tournaments you love like the Euros the World Cup etc yeah I think for for the bigger ones like the World Cup the Euros the um, the South America one whose name was completely forgotten Cup of America that's it yeah. <laughs> and the African Cup of Nations as well I've yeah. always really liked um, I think it was more it, it's before I started really working with football that was kind of a big event in the, the football calendar, if you like, you know, everything mm-hmm. stopped and you kind of, you, you planned your day when I was working elsewhere, you you planned your day around what matches were on. And it, it's always been, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of qualifiers and I'm not a huge fan mm-hmm. of the Nations League and things like that. Like 
I always find the international break more of a hindrance in terms of what I'm doing now that I work in the game and anything else when it's just friendlies or qualifying games. I mean, I'm I'm Scottish, so 90% of qualifying games for us are meaningless at the moment. It's just the, the way it's been for, for a long period of time. But when it comes to the big tournaments, I think that there's a sense of occasion around it. And I think that's something that's really interesting within football just now because there's a sense that club football is trying to create its own version of that. I mean, the Champions League is to an extent and they've extended the Champions League going forward. But the European Super League was the first real nudge towards that and and Mm. rightfully that got bent very quickly. I think that was a horrible idea. But they've already announced that the the extended Club World Cup is coming in a few years and it's going to be, a I think, a four-yearly tournament and it's it's going to be run along the same lines of a, a World Cup. So I think it's interesting to see that club football, which is obviously where all the money is and all the exposure in terms of TV rights are, they still look towards things like the World Cup as a standard bearer in terms of football competition. So, um, yeah, the, the big tournaments always catch my eye, but yeah, I'm not a fan of, of other international football, to be honest. Well, that leads perfectly into the first question I wanted to ask you, was about scouting international tournaments over club football, especially when you're looking at younger players. And obviously you said that you have you love watching youth football and the, the AFCON under-20 tournament and things like that. But like even even with the professional, you know, the the, the professional tournaments, obviously, like the World Cup, the Cup of America and, and the Euros and things like that. Is it like, is it wrong? I don't want to say wrong because uh, I suppose maybe it's maybe it's subjective. Is, is it is it accurate? as a scout to watch those tournaments and sign players. Because in the past, let's be honest, even still to this day, we see a lot of players signed off the back of their performances for their countries. You saw Morocco at the World Cup. Sofian Amrabat was linked with Barcelona and he was close to a move to Barcelona as well in January. But is it like, I mean, even in the past, you've um, there's this kind of, I don't want to say myth, but like Zinedine Zidane was the, you know, the best player always at the World Cup. And that's where most people would have watched him as opposed to, especially a lot of people in the UK when football wasn't as accessible in countries such as, Spain or, or or France or Italy. With youth football, though, is there is it accurate to scout a player from those tournaments as opposed to club football, or is it important to look at both? I think it's not so much accurate or inaccurate. I think it's all information. And I think that the more information that you can build in terms of a player profile and, and the overall opinion that you can build on a player, the better. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you mentioned Amrabat. I find it quite funny during the World Cup that suddenly every big English team, the fan base for that team, were convinced he was the answer. So Liverpool yeah. fans were convinced he was the answer. United fans were convinced he was the answer. And I'm always more sceptical. I think it's in the book Soccernomics. Um, they talk about... Simon Cooper, it's a great book. Yeah, they talk about how it's very difficult to establish whether players good or not based on international tournaments. It's a mm-hmm. small sample size. But I was actually in the Artemio Franchi in Florence just a couple of weeks ago with my son. We went to the Fiorentina-Milan game and, and where we were sitting on the curve, I had a perfect view of the pitch and Amrabat was sensational. Now, yeah. previously, I would have been of the opinion that, no, you cannot just go to an international tournament and see the player who has been, probably his reputation was as a mid-ranking European player at that point, and all of a sudden he was being linked as a, a world beater, but he was very good in person, so I think the important thing is that you don't make a judgment based on it. 
So you don't make a judgment based on whether a player is good or bad at an international tournament because there could be either and there could be a, a multitude of reasons. Look, at, um, there's been a number of instances in the past where players just haven't been fit coming up to an international tournament so they don't play their best. Look at Mohamed Salah when Egypt were last on the world stage and it really struggled for Egypt and he was nowhere near fit but because he was the, the huge name he had to play. I think youth football and youth tournaments are the same thing. You can't go into it and base your entire judgment upon that. But at the same time, it's an interesting and relevant piece of information, whether they play and how they play in that setting. It can be really difficult for international players at youth level who aren't perhaps used to being called up and going away with their country. You're taking them out, for example, if a player is at the biggest clubs in Europe in terms of they're in the academy system or the under-23s or the B team for some nations. They're used to everything being of a certain standard within their club. So coaching is a high standard, um, nutrition, physios, everything is done and it's all geared up to that player's performance. And if they go away to an international camp, they might very quickly figure out that that's not the case. Look at Roy Keane. I was going to say, Roy, straight away, Roy Keane's like, man. <laughs> yeah, he, he is the, the poster boy for that when he obviously walked out of the, the Republic of Ireland camp because he was so disillusioned by how unprofessional he saw it all and that's because he was used to the best at Manchester United. It can be the same thing at a slightly different level for young players but the the information starts with the ones who are called up because you can correctly in most cases make the assumption that if a player is called up to an under 21, under 20, under 18, under 19 camp then there's a little bit of potential there and it's been identified by the association. So straight away, that player deserves you to give a look. But And then when you're watching the games, obviously, it's the same as watching any game of football. We, we talked about it last week in the podcast that you're not so much looking for absolute standout performance from zero to 90 minutes, but you're looking for those flashes that make you think that the player's worth a deeper look. And that's kind of where youth football comes in for me. You're looking for the moments when a player receives the ball in the half term with their head up and you can tell that they're comfortable in possession. Or you're looking for the ones who know how to drop off at angles or drop into pockets to receive the ball to help their teams progress. And then, of course, you're looking for the ones who stand out in terms of driving with the ball, dribbling in tight spaces, making angles for shots, converting shots, and all these little little things and little instances that's what you're looking for. You're not just looking at one player for the whole game and, and seeing whether they are good, bad or indifferent. Mm-hmm. You're just looking to see which players deserve more attention. And I think that's that's kind of almost what scouting is. It, it's not about black and white. There's so much grey. And you've got to understand that within the grey, that's where the players that you're going to sign are going to come from more often than not. Because at Velez, especially, we're not in a position to sign... I'm not watching Brazil under 20s and going, yep, I'll have that one, that one, and that one. But Brazil might be playing, I don't know, Paraguay. They might be playing Venezuela. They might be playing Ecuador. And then I'm looking at those teams and going, well, actually, those teams, those players might have a chance. So it becomes a little bit about context more than anything else. And, and it's important to be able to watch it with that view. How can you compete against kind of those bigger clubs because you're right if you watch Brazil's on the 20s for instance you know Real Madrid have a player have a scout there at least one scout there watching the players so if you're a scout and obviously you've, you've worked at clubs such as Aberdeen now at Velez 
if you're scouting these tournaments and you see a player that's good, are you in your head going, well, look, we have not, because he's so good, like, look, we've no chance, so I'm not even going to bother? Or are you, you know, are you still kind of, are you still scouting him, even though you know that if you're up against a team like a Real Madrid, there's probably, respectfully, you know, or not much of a chance you have of signing that player? I think um, Real Madrid's always a difficult one because Real Madrid, Liverpool, Man City, Barcelona, they're probably about, 1% of footballers in the world who are good enough for that level and who have a name that's big enough for them to be interested. So, for example, obviously, Real Madrid have done well in, in Brazil in recent years with Messias and Rodrigo. Um, I know Hendrik as well. Hendrik signed up too, yeah. Um, but I think that until you fully understand what you're up against, you can't just rule yourself out completely. So, if there's a player who I think fits our DNA, our game model, everything else, the first thing I'll try to do is connect with the agent. And generally, the easiest way to do that in the first instance is through LinkedIn. So straight away, you're trying to connect with the agent and just having a general conversation about players to see exactly what the lay of the land is. You can't tip your hand straight away and connect with the agent and go, right, I want this player. Because you're completely showing all your cars too quickly, if you like. Mm-hmm but at least a more general conversation about the club, what the club's aims are. We're in a fortunate position with Velez within our level at the moment because what's been done really well over the, the last couple of years is that Magnus and, and everyone else at the club has shown that, first of all, we pay, and we pay on time, which isn't always the case in Spain. We've also shown that we look after players. So when a player is injured on a short-term contract in Spain, it's not, if the player signed up to the end of the season, it's not unusual for that team just to release the player and that's it, they have to rehab on their own. We've had players who've been injured who weren't part of our plans, but they still their, their rehab is all taken care of within the club still. So luckily, Velas now have a reputation as being a good club within our level, so agents are aware of that. But I think that... Um, in all honesty, if it comes out to a straight 50-50 fight between us and Real Madrid, we're going to lose a player every time. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't try because mm-hmm. in two years in the Real Madrid system or three years in the Real Madrid system, that player might now be disillusioned, the agent's looking for a solution, and we still have that contact. And that's where we can get players out. For example, we have the likes of Betis B, Sevilla B, Hadith B, all in our group at Velez. So we're constantly looking at those teams and going, well, there might be one player, two players in there who are going to play in the first team for La Liga, but what about all the rest of them? Because there is real talent within that system. Mm-hmm. And that may be valid for the player that you're talking about that we would have we'd be going up against Real Madrid in the first instance. As long as we have a good relationship with the agent and we're open and honest, then we'll be in the running in two, three years' time and that player is then ready to come out. Does having that standard as, as a club that you talked about help you get, I suppose, loan players? Like when you're looking for a loan player, clubs, as you said, in, say, La Liga or the Segunda Division will say they have a great reputation, they'll take care of the players, they play this way, they'll give the player game time. Does that help you get those players on loan? Or are loan players something you want to, maybe an avenue you don't want to go down? Or, or what's the kind of... yeah. Loans, I mean, we wouldn't ever say no outright mm-hmm. to whether we would take a loan player because circumstances, I mean, we, again, we spoke about it last week that you're evaluating the deal and the circumstances, not so much just the player. 
Um, but I believe it would if clubs now at the top level are becoming more intelligent about where they loan players out to. Um, you see the majority, I would say, clubs in the English Premier League, for example, now have loan managers or pathway managers that work within the club. And I think Brighton, Brighton are the best example of that. They had David Weir who was doing that job. And when Dan Ashworth left to go to Newcastle, David Weir stepped up to become technical director and take Dan Ashworth's role. And then Gordon Greer, who was another former international, who was a former Brighton player, stepped into the loan manager role. Their job and their their main task at the moment is to make sure that those players are getting accurate development. So if they can identify a club who, as you say, will look after the player and who play the right way and will play them in positions and put them into positions that are beneficial for their development, I think that's more likely that the, the loaning club is going to be willing to send a player to you on loan. In Spain, to an extent, um, loans can be geographical. So mm-hmm. we're unlikely to be going to Athletic Club in Bilbao or Real Sociedad and, and say, kind of have X, Y or Z player on loan. We're not saying it won't happen, but it's unlikely. Um, but then because Malaga is such a attractive place to live because it's it's a sun trap. You know, everyone wants to live down in the south of Spain because the, the weather is phenomenal 90% of the year. It's quite, you know, disappointing when I'm sit- sitting on Zoom calls and I'm sitting in <laughs> crazy snowstorms <laughs> and I'm seeing Magnus sitting outside on a terrace. <laughs> But that's just the way it goes. So if we were to approach a Sevilla or a, a Betis, for example, who are geographically close, and of course Malaga, maybe slightly less so because there's a lot of bit of history there, mm-hmm. um, then we are more likely to be able to play it out geographically. But yeah, I think that if you if you have a club that's run well and has a reputation for being run well, you are going to be more attractive for loans. But the same goes for transfers. Players and agents are more likely to, to answer your messages or answer your phone calls because your club has a reputation for doing things the right way. And we, we signed three teenagers from Nigeria just um, in the winter transfer window. One of them who we were very excited about, unfortunately, got injured in training. Um, he hurt his knee quite badly. But a lot of clubs at that point would have pulled the plug on the deal, but the players getting rehabbed because it's the right thing to do more than anything else. So... As long as you can you can put yourself in the the right light, I think you will get the benefits in the long run. Your chat about the weather there reminds me of when I had uh, Gabriella Chaffee on the podcast. Obviously, the former Hellas Verona and Udinese manager, and he was sitting at a window, and I, you could see the sea behind them, and it was beautiful <laughs> in Italy. And I had just you could see like my shed out my back. <laughs> it was it was such a contrast. Um, going back to you football though, what, is there an element of and I could be talking nonsense here, but I'm just genuinely, genuinely curious. Is there an element of seeing them in a different system? So even like we spoke earlier about Sofia Amrabat, obviously he's not a youth player. This is more focused towards youth players. But with Amrabat, he plays in a quite, I, I would call quite expansive with Fiorentina under Vincenzo Italiano, whereas Morocco were extremely, I don't want to say defense because I don't really like that word, but they, they sat back very deep and, whether it be a four five one or five four one low block, is there kind of that element of seeing them in a different system to kind of gauge how they would fit in other systems? Because sometimes players can do really well in one system and then kind of struggle in another. Whereas international football maybe gives you a nice blend kind of or another viewpoint. Is that true, or is it anything that you weigh up? 
Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't say it's not true. I think that international football in terms of tactical styles and tactical systems is very, very different to club football, purely mm. because the, the coaches have far less time with the players than anything else. So really, at club level, at the beginning of pre-season, you're straight away, you're implementing and essentially uploading into the players the game system and the patterns of play and everything else that are going to be constant throughout the season. At international football, they'll turn up, be told what the formation is, and it'll basically be left from that point up to them to then to then translate that, if you like, into how they will play in that system on the pitch. Uh, there will be some set-piece training and things like that at the national level because that's a short-term, quick gain that you can build in. But I think that in terms of playing in different systems, I always come down to the fact that if you're scouting properly, it should never be a surprise for a player. I mean, at Velez, we're very lucky that we have very specific player roles for each position, so we know technically and in terms of data what we are looking for from the players for those roles. So uh, we talked last week about how difficult it is to find wingers in Spain because Spanish teams play through the thirds, whereas we are looking to be more transitional and attack space. So we want our wingers to be more vertical, if Mm -hmm. you like, willing to make those forward runs. If you see enough of it within a player, they should be able to fit that role. It'll take some adjustment, but as long as the coaching is good and the information is good, the players should be able to translate it. At international level, I think what you see doesn't always translate back to club football. And again, that's a problem with recruiting purely from international football because players will go into systems and play in positions that just don't suit them because they don't have those same relationships and connections with players around them that they would have had before. We've seen it so many times when great players play for their nations and just don't play well. Mm-hmm. If you look at England 10 years ago when the conversation was who plays in midfield, is it Paul Scholes, Stephen Gerrard, Frank Lampard? And you just try to shoehorn them all in together or stick Paul Scholes out in the left wing. And It's very, very difficult, I think, in international football to, to really talk about systems of play unless it's... I think tournaments are different mm-hmm. because tournaments, you do have more of a sample size in terms of how many games you're watching in the World Cup we were able to have those daily podcasts that you hosted brilliantly where you talked about the system and all the different games and teams and things like that. And I think that was the difference because you had more of a sample size and more regular football. But generally, when you're watching international football, I don't think you can get a real sense of a player's role suitability. Mm. Yeah. In terms of finding potential, this is something that, well, I've struggled with in the past. Obviously, I don't have the eye for talent that that you would have and it's definitely one of my weakest areas obviously when I say eye for talent I can see when when Messi's good of course but I mean when you're kind of scouting down the divisions and even when you're writing a scout report I say this to a lot of the writers at TFA sometimes it's really easy to make a player look like the best in the world when you're writing a scout report you also have to be realistic but when you're watching a a player in youth football or even at club level a young player is it hard to gauge the potential and match that to the club you're with because again as I said you watch a Brazil on the 20s and you see or on the 17s 18s whatever and you see Hendrik and obviously say before he went to Real Madrid you, you can kind of gauge that he will go to a very big club but is it difficult to watch the rest of the team then and say okay he might fit in with us 
for instance? I wouldn't say difficult. I think potential is quite nebulous because it, it's so difficult to define what it is. <clears throat> this isn't, it's not football manager where you get a, a score out of mm-hmm. a couple hundred or a hundred, whatever it is, I can't remember. And and that's the player's potential and it's finite and that's what it is for that player's career. Potential comes tied in with a whole lot of different things like the ability of a player to adapt to a different culture to to play professional football in some instances, especially when you're watching the the African Championships and there's so much talent and there's a there are a couple of really really top level companies right now that are working out of Africa who are doing great work that are identifying domestic African players quickly and keeping databases and and have really interesting insights into African football, but you still don't know when you talk about a player from Africa with potential, how they're going to translate to a different culture, a professional environment, um, professional football, no level. So I think when you talk about potential, you're still scouting young players in the same way you're scouting players who are in their mid-20s. You're still watching the games and looking for those moments. I think there's a little bit more leeway for a young player. You always hear the term, players very raw. And I've never quite understood what that meant because a rough around the edges is another term. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, you, you can you can make more not excuses, you can make more allowances for a young player in terms of if you watch them receive a ball back to goal eight times in a game, if three times they do it and make the right choice, then that's probably enough for you to have another look. Mm-hmm. But if you're looking for a professional player and, and three times out of eight they've done that, then that's probably not enough because at that level you expect their awareness and their game intelligence to have started to develop and then it's a different light that you're viewing that player through. So when you're talking about potential, yeah, you can, if you're watching Brazil in their 20s and you've already ruled out Edric and you've probably already ruled out another two because you've already heard that City Group are there and you know that they'll sign them for one of their conglomerate teams Red Bull might be there, especially when you're talking about the African Championships. They're very mm-hmm. highly, you know, motivated in those markets. You know that if you're up against that, then there's no point because you're not going to win it. But once you've ruled out those players, I think every other player is open to open to examination within context. So it has to be about is the player the right profile for us? Because even at youth level, we don't want to be signing players who aren't of our profile because what's the point? If, if we have a certain profile for a number nine and we say, well, here's this number nine at a youth international tournament who's looking really good. And then the first thing Magnus will say to me when I, I raise him and surface him is, does he fit the profile? And if I come back and say no, well, first of all, I've not done my job properly because I know there's an expectation that players fit the profile. So that player won't go on our shortlist. Um, so for us, as long as the player is the requisite Age has perhaps market value is difficult because everybody in football, I've never understood, but everybody in football relies on transfer market, the website. And it's crowdsourced valuations of players, which don't get me wrong, it's probably within a range of being correct in some instances. But literally you have people who will say that they're only interested in a player if their market value is over this level, because that means to them they must be good. 
and I never quite get it. But yeah, well, Weiss, Weiss go use Transamerica as well for valuations. Yeah. If I'm not correct, yeah. And you're right. I think Transamerica is very um, it's not dangerous to use, but it's not something I would solely rely my or depend on for my football knowledge because it's quite, as you said, it's it's not it's not entirely accurate. I mean, you see, you like even Enzo Fernandez, his market value was way below what Chelsea ended up paying. So using that as a valuation source is incorrect in my opinion. Yeah, so market value has to be set by the market. It's basic economic theory, right? If if there are 10 teams in for a player, their their value is higher than if there's one team in for a player because those 10 teams will play off against one another and the selling club has a bit of war, the value of that player goes up. But is that player any better because 10 teams are interested than he is if one team's interested? He's not any better. He's still the same player. Mm-hmm. But the way the market views him has changed and that's made a difference in the price. So when we're looking at it in terms of which players we can choose in terms of potential, I think everything around that comes into context. So potential is, like I say, it's a bit bit of a nebulous term. You can look at it in terms of if a player is playing in the the Brazilian under-20 and they've played X amount of minutes at club level as well as an 18-year-old, 17-year-old, you can look at that and say, well, there must be something there because at club level, he's been picked regularly with the first team. And that's why I always use data and use usage data and the, the emerging talent code that I have so that we can quickly surface the players who are being used by their clubs at a young age so we know which players have potential in, in quotation marks. It. Does that give them an advantage over, in your eyes, over someone who is still maybe with the or within the academy system or the reserves of their team? Because... They're playing, not to, not to sound condescending, they're playing men's men's football, and I don't really like that term, but they're playing first-team football with grown men you know, who are physically stronger, whereas other players who aren't, obviously, are still in the academy. They're playing against their own age group. It does, and I think the, the key thing here is when you talk about a player playing men's football, it's risk. So if you're bringing two players to me, and one of them has played... 500 minutes last season, 1,000 minutes this season with our first team and one of them still on the youth team, I'm going to naturally be drawn more to the player who has more concrete evidence behind them mm-hmm. in terms of having played first team football. And that's why the loan system is so interesting because and there's an awful lot of people who will not sign a player based on the fact it they'll be coming out on their first loan from the Premier League, for example. There's a risk that is rightly or wrongly associated with young players who haven't had a loan yet because you don't know how they're going to adapt to men's football. Um, at Aberdeen, we took Leighton Clarkson at the start of this season. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was out on loan last season in the Championship. It escapes me now where he was. It might have been Blackburn, but I can't remember. And his loan didn't go as planned. So this time he'd come out on loan. We knew that he'd been out last season. It didn't go well in the championship, but we knew he had talent. So we took him on loan from Liverpool. <clears throat> in his first team debut, the morning he signed, lunchtime he played, he scored one of the goals of the season with probably his 20th touch of the ball. And he's gone on from strength to strength at Aberdeen. But there was already evidence behind him having played men's football. He'd already had a couple of loans. It's far more difficult for a team to be willing to take a player on a first loan because you don't know what you're getting. The same thing goes for signing a player direct from academy football. You will, 
if you're doing it, you will want to trial them in the first instance and have them train with you so you can see exactly what you're getting mm-hmm. because they have to be able to, I mean, to a certain extent, any player in an academy of a decent level team should have a, a base level technical ability because they're a professional footballer. But that doesn't mean that they can translate that technical ability to a game. And that's where the risk comes in. So I always say when I speak about young players that if I was advising a young player who was in the academy of Chelsea or Arsenal or Liverpool or Man City or Man United, wherever it is, get yourself out and play competitive men's football. You'll build data behind you, and which will be helpful for clubs in terms of recruitment. And you will show you're capable of playing at that level. And I think that if two players, everything else being even, if one has already been exposed to men's football and one hasn't, I am more likely to take the one who's been exposed to men's football. Mm -hmm. In terms of potential then when you sign a player, would you, I mean, obviously say you have a centre forward and he's scoring goals. Would you sign a player then based on your belief that he has a higher potential to go above that? Centre forward, or do you kind of sign those U players to? Obviously, they do that at the, the top level. So Manchester City or Man United will have the capabilities to do that. But how important is that is potential in a player to you, at, whether it be at Aberdeen or now at Villas, to be able to say, okay, well, he will likely be better than our centre forward, even if he doesn't start right away, even if he is quite, you know, cliche term raw, as you said. Yeah, I think that. In Velez especially, it's important because we only have <clears throat> squad registration at our level means that we are only allowed X amount of over 23 players mm-hmm. within the squad, signed and, and ready to play and licensed. Players under 23 do not need a license to play. So theoretically, we could fill our whole squad with players under 23 and not have any license problems. It would never do it because that's not a way to build a squad. But when you're talking about signing a player signing a player based on potential, we're always looking for that because part of the model for our club has to be finding the players that will have a resale value going forward. So, again, you go back to Aberdeen, we signed Bojan Majowski and Duke in the summer, um, both of whom now we, we said at the time, it's written in reports that i done and other people did, that these players will have resale value. And that's going to be borne out this summer coming for Aberdeen. The same thing for Velez. We want to get to the point where we're signing players, young players, and giving them exposure to first-team football. And then we're then developing a market for those players from higher up in Spain or from higher up in Portugal or wherever it is. So you have to have an eye on, again, that nebulous term of potential. What do you think that player could be? And it comes down to the fact, you talk about centre-forwards in particular, They've got to have shown some ability to score goals, otherwise you're not taking them based on potential. But I think XG and shots and things like that also come into account when you're watching a player. Mm -hmm. They might only have scored three goals, but you might have watched them and thought, that player should probably have had ten goals in the ten games that I've watched when they're positioning, the shots are taken. And when a young player, in the case of a young player, you're more likely to give that player the benefit of the doubt than you are a 26-year-old who's only scored three goals out of the 10 that you thought they could have had because you're thinking that that player is learning from that experience and next time around they're more likely to get a finish. So, yeah, I think potential is important within recruitment and it's more the idea of what potential means for each position because it's not the same throughout the squad. Mm -hmm. Striker's potential is different to centre-half's potential because 
<laughs> centre half will come into his prime later than a striker will. So you're kind of taking a more long term view in that player, if you like, and not just looking at the next two or three years as you are with a striker at 18, 19 years old. Do you worry when signing a young player and when scouting a new player that you're bringing them, bringing them into the right environment, you're bringing them into the right league where they can grow the most? And I know a lot of clubs, in my opinion anyway, especially at the upper end of the scale. I mean, Chelsea were done for it in 2019. And they weren't done specifically for this, but they were... Arsene Wenger actually came out publicly and spoke out against them. They were signing players at a an incredible rate that chances are not many of them would make first in football. And then you kind of hinder the development. I mean, look at... Lucas Piazzon was there until he was like 29-30 on loan. He went down on like 10 loans. Barrio Passage the same. I believe it's at Atlanta now. But like, yeah, so is that is that something that's taken into consideration that we're bringing this player in? It's more so, I don't want to say, it's, it's not a safeguarding issue. It's more so like a, a thing where you say, if we bring him in and this isn't the right league and it's not the right place, his development will significantly suffer. Is yeah. that something you take into account and you maybe worry about? Maybe worry is a bad term to use. but I think that if you're recruiting for the correct levels and correct places for your level of club and the geographical location of your club, that should be less of a concern. Um, I talked about the fact that we signed three players direct from Nigeria, three teenagers. We signed a centre-half, a goalkeeper, and a central midfielder in the winter, <clears throat> all of which Magnus had seen play at a showcase tournament in Nigeria a few months previously. So we'd seen the players live and spoken to them and spoke at representatives and everything else there. But there is still always a concern about how those players will then adapt to the different rigours of European football, of living in Spain. I mean, climate's not so bad. Nigeria is obviously a very warm climate. In terms of Europe, Malaga is probably one of the, the closest ones that you're going to get because it is generally very warm there. So we're not so worried in terms of that. Whereas if we were in the Baltics, for example, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia are all extremely active in the African market and taking players from places like Nigeria, Ghana, Ivory Coast, you see it all the time. And they're, they're churning those players and, and they're trying to hit on the next Terra Moffi, who they will then sell on to Belgium and they will then go to France and will then go to another team in France and whose value is increasing exponentially each time. But as long as you're being not so much honest with yourself, but as long as you're aware that when you're signing a young player, you have a duty of care to a point, but you also have to make sure that your development system is as good as it can be. So we're comfortable at Velez that the level of coaching, the level of player care in terms of making sure that they have somewhere to stay, that they can, they're, they're learning the language, they're looked after from a medical perspective, and in terms of the coaching that they get on a a day-to-day basis within the club, as long as all of that is at the level it should be, then the player should be in an environment to develop. I think the instance that you're talking about with Chelsea, it was, it was, they were almost building out entire farm systems, usually Mm -hmm. the American term and, and baseball term, but they were doing it in such a way that 90% 90% of the players that they were signing were never going to play first-team football. And that was at a time when the academy at Cobham was second to none in terms of the level of players and the level of English players. So how many players of the players that they signed didn't then go on and kick on their careers as they should have had? But how many of the players that they had previously 
who they'd had since younger age groups because I think they weren't allowed to sign players until a certain age from abroad, so whether it was 15, 16, 17. So what about the players you'd had since they were 10 or 11 that could have then kicked on or had a career? It becomes very murky and very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, Barcelona had a similar thing when they were forced to release some players from the Far East because it was found that they shouldn't have been able to sign them. Um, and I think that when you're doing that in terms of talent hoarding and talent farming without being comfortable that you're able to develop all those players to the best of your ability, it becomes much more, not, I nearly said sinister, and that wouldn't be fair, but I don't think it's sinister, but it's far more focused on what your club wants than what fits what's for the player. I think when you look at the academies that are doing it very well, Benfica stand out. Mm-hmm. Because the level of coaching and everything in terms of player care that they do, and for a long time Benfica only had residential camps within Benfica, within Lisbon itself. So uh, they they eventually built these satellite places, if you like, within Portugal. So there was one that I was down in Faro um, last year. There was a camp down in Faro for Benfica for their players at a satellite. And that's where Goncalo Ramos came through. If he, and the club have said that if he came through at a time when that wasn't in place, he wasn't mature enough at the time to go to Lisbon on his own. So chances are he wouldn't have developed as well. So Benfica are taking a more holistic view as opposed to just a, a mass player trading view, which I think is important. I'm aware I'm going into grey era territory here, but while you're on, I want to discuss, and we kind of brought this, you brought this point up earlier with the European Super League. And as well with the, the City group, of course, and, and, and now with Chelsea. Is there a, a worry that these bigger clubs, and you see it now with the City group, how many clubs they've bought, and I know there's a lot of other clubs that are going to start doing it, and even an issue with feeder clubs, that these mass, that these big clubs, these big European giants, especially if the Super League was to become yeah. a thing, they would just kind of, as you said, to use that American term, they would just farm all these young players and without even a thought that they'd make it to the fourth team, they'll just go to these clubs. Like if it's with um, Man City, they'll go to one of their other clubs, like in Melbourne or wherever, New York City, for example. Is that kind of a concern amongst scouts and, and recruitment teams outside of that kind of bubble? I think there's a there's an understanding that it's made it difficult <laughs> just in terms of if you are chasing a player, you've identified a player and suddenly you become aware that City Group or Red Bull or any other one of the, the groups that you care to name are, are also interested in that player, then it becomes more difficult because even if we're talking about the players at perhaps mid-tier level, mm-hmm. if the, that player learns that City Group are interested, they don't hear New York City or Girona or Lommel. They yeah, hear Manchester City. City. Yeah. <laughs> and I've always said, and people people quite often call into question a player's decision-making when they make a transfer that doesn't work out for them. Mm-hmm. Why did they go there? They knew they were never going to play. I maintain that professional footballers do not see the world in the same way that we do. They have an ironclad self-belief that you have to have to come through the academy system and become a professional footballer. If you have any doubt in your own ability, you're not making it. Mm. You're not making it. So if you're 18, 19, 20, and you hear that you could go to Real Madrid or Manchester City or Liverpool, you're going to go. Because in your head, you're going to go and you're going to play. 
Yeah. And then it takes a couple of seasons maybe for that viewpoint to shift slightly. And then in terms of what in first seed football will come out. So that that's just the mentality. I think multi multi club ownership is different from group to group. If you look at City Group, what's been interesting is that they have very specifically targeted clubs in areas of economic interest to their owners. So they're in Japan, they're in India, they're in South America, areas that you know that their owners have economic interests in, mm. just the way they've done it. The interesting one for me just now is 777 Group, because they have an interest in the likes of Genoa. They've just announced interest in Hertha Berlin. Um, Standard Liège is another one. There's another couple that I can't remember off the top of my head. But it's very difficult with those clubs to figure out which one comes at the top of the chain. Whereas City Group, it's Man City. Very clearly. Yeah. Whereas that is just more of a... They're all kind of around the same level. Well, Genoa are going to be in... I would imagine Serie A next season because they're yeah. second at the minute in Serie B and then as you said Hertha Berlin are the Bundesliga so you have two yeah. top flight teams in the top five league there. Very difficult because then the, the, the way that everyone used to think that these things worked is that it was basically a player pathway which is what how Red Bull had it. When Red Bull signed young players they went to Liefering first in the second mm-hmm. team of Austrian football and they'd get that exposure to men's football that we talked about and then the best ones would then get optioned up and they'd go up to Red Bull Salzburg and they'd play for Red Bull Salzburg, they'd play Champions League football, more exposure. And then there was always a sense that, oh, well, they'll just go to Leipzig until Haaland said no. And I think that broke the illusion that that would always be the pathway. Once Haaland went to Dortmund instead of Leipzig, then it became more more of a, a not a true pathway. But if there isn't a pathway because nobody knows which club is where in the hierarchy, then what good is it? I mean, I know they're sharing things like they're sharing coaching knowledge, they're sharing scouting knowledge. So from that basis, it makes sense. But in terms of player trading and player movement and player development, does it really make sense at 777 Group? I'm not convinced. I, mean, I like a lot of the things they're doing. They've hired some exceptionally smart people on the data side of things, absolutely top class. But the structure behind it just seems a little bit confused to me at the moment. So I think it's difficult from a scouting perspective because we're not a multi-club ownership. We're we're not. We're we're a, a club at the, the fourth tier of Spanish football who have aspirations to get up the, the pyramid and that's what we'll do. But you're having to compete against much bigger economic models which makes it difficult to attract players sometimes. Especially when a player who Say, for example, we in five years' time, we've reached a second team of Spanish football, which is kind of the aim. If we are going for a player, Girona at our level, and going for a player, then that player is going to see Man City and they're going to choose Girona mm-hmm. regardless of what we do. So, yeah, it does become more awkward, I think. And even with uh, it's quite topical because right now, as well, you have UEFA are apparently going to be reviewing their model regarding owners and whether owners can manage to clubs in European competition so say for instance Chelsea bought out Benfica but then you have an issue of you know transferring players among those clubs you know like so if Chelsea owned Benfica for instance okay if the transfer fee is 105 million it's really realistically not going to be is it because it's being swapped between two different entities under the same ownership let's be real it's like giving yourself 100 quid 
Um, so it, it's quite difficult, and it's just something I want to bring up, especially when, especially because you work at the recruitment side and scouting, where you're kind of competing with these global conglomerates, really. Um, so just one or two more questions I want to ask you about is uh, kind of just going back to just purely scouting young players. Is tactical intelligence something that you take into consideration, or is that something that's seen as coachable? Maybe like okay, if a player is not the most intelligent on a pitch, you know, we can coach that into and we can coach in these principles. Or is it something that's quite impressive when you see it in a young player and you go, this guy is really intelligent and he has the technical ability obviously to go with it? Yeah, I think I think both. I think that if you see it, great. If you don't see it, you have to trust in your coaching staff to have clear principles of play that are understandable for a player who might mm-hmm. not be... I mean, they might have all the natural talent in the world, but if they don't harness it properly, look at Adama Traore, for example. Physically, absolute specimen in terms of what he could achieve in a football pitch. But for the longest period of time, I would say he's much better now and has been for the last couple of seasons. But for the la- for the longest period of time within his career, he's not been as effective because he didn't spend enough time thinking about the the little points of tactical intelligence and positioning and things like that. Now he does a little bit more, so he's playing better. Um, I think an interesting one is Oscar Gluck of Israel, who really shone in a youth tournament um, last year. Israel got the final. Never mm-hmm. been before for Israel to reach a final of anything within football. But they got to the final driven by this player, Oscar Gluck, who was such a technical, tactical phenomenon for that age level. He's since gone on to Red Bull Salzburg, because you know Red Bull sign everything. <laughs> to Red Bull Salzburg and he's been playing there and he's been doing well in the Austrian Bundesliga and, and looking like he will go and have a career but he's one who when you watched him he had the tactical intelligence in terms of he played as an 8 or a 10 or even more advanced than that and he had that innate understanding that when his team had the ball in deeper areas he knew how to dismark and create separation to find little pockets to receive the ball Emery received the ball, he knew how to receive the ball in a half turn with his head up. And he already knew where he was going with the ball before he received the ball, kind of that, that high level of, of tactical understanding and game knowledge that you want from a young player. So he was one that was like that. But you do absolutely, when you see it, you see it and it stands out at that level because a lot of the players, although the tactical, the, the technical level, sorry, is very good. The physical level can often be really good in terms of more in terms of perhaps pace, acceleration, agility, balance rather than strength. And they're not always fully developed people yet. They're still teenagers that are that are still developing and still growing. Um, so you can see all that, but sometimes they don't the games lack a little bit of top level understanding or game intelligence of what they're trying to do in terms of moving the ball. So when you do see it, it does pop out. But again, that's why it's really important to have a firm knowledge of what you want in terms of each position from a player. So you have to have a game model and a DNA and an understanding of what you're trying to be. Mm-hmm. So that if you see that within a player, within a system, if you see a number seven making the runs that you want your number seven to make, even if the pass isn't coming, then you understand it within your system that would translate to having a higher game understanding, role understanding, position understanding. And that's something that would be more beneficial for you. The last question I want to ask you is about the, I know we kind of touched on a little bit with cultural differences between continents, especially, 
what you obviously watch a lot of African football, South American and European as well. What is the biggest difference you'd say when scouting players from those continents? Because maybe where European clubs would focus more on physicality at a young age, for instance, South America might focus on something different. Is there is there is there a difference when you're scouting those players? A noticeable difference that they're usually better at one aspect than a, a South American team. You'd play, I would for say, would be more kind of fancy razzle dazzle, for instance. That's a, that's, a, that's a lazy stereotype. I'm just throwing out there, but I, that's why I'm, I want to ask you. It's difficult to answer without sounding like I'm stereotyping. Mm-hmm. When you watch African football, you will see a lot of technical ability, a lot of flair quite often. You know, players like to do something different on the ball. But from a teamwork dynamic and from a tactical dynamic, the games will be perhaps less developed than it Mm -hmm. would in Europe, for example. So oftentimes, it's funny, I had a conversation with Magnus. We were watching a lot of African football when I first took the job. Um, And you watch teams play, even at international level, national level, and the ball always goes forward. The tempo is not always high, and part of that's down to climate and things like that. And maybe it's a little bit, there's less intensity in terms of off the ball pressing and things like that. But teams very rarely get the ball, say, in the fullback positions, and if there's nothing forward for them in Europe, you'll see the player put his foot on the ball, spin, put it back to the near side central defender, who will then come out the other way, and teams will try to work up the opposite side of the pitch. Doesn't really happen in Africa. Um, it's very difficult to scout centre halves in terms of their their confidence and ability on the ball, mm-hmm. for example, to an extent, because they, they don't see a lot of the ball and often in, in quite a lot of cases, not all. And I'm not generalising saying that's always the case, but that is a trend. In South America, there's more intensity in terms of the robustness of challenges. Some teams will just kick the shit out of you. <laughs> and you're watching the game and you're, you're questioning a lot about what the referee's doing because the, the first 10 challenges could all have been yellow cards and it takes them until about the 30th minute to pull a card out of his pocket then things mm-hmm. settle down. But you see a little bit more game understanding, I think. In Europe, it very much depends on the region. So if you're watching a Scandinavian youth national team, then... They will be very functional, physically very adept. They they will understand the patterns of play because of the way that kids are coached there. If you're watching Spain, Portugal, Italy, then they will mirror what you see from the senior international teams. If you're watching the Netherlands, there's a bit more expression because that's the Dutch way. They, they question everything and the kids have so much ta- technical ability and then the physicality is coming through as they grow. So and then you watch the England, Scotland. England will be very good. And increasingly, mm-hmm. England have perhaps bucked the trend in terms of you know that stereotype because they have been much more technical over the last decade in terms of their youth teams than they were previously. Um, unfortunately, Scotland and I'm afraid Ireland have a long way to catch up with that, but that's just the way it goes. So there are there are tendencies, I think, but. Again, because you're watching it and you're watching for the sparks, then it makes it easier to translate a little bit. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you were watching it and just basing every game based on 
quality of the football, then you're going to turn off very quickly because sometimes quality of the football is not there. But it can take up until the 80th minute for a player to show you that moment that makes it worthwhile you watching those 80 minutes. Don't get me wrong, I've sat through plenty of games when I haven't seen any of them. And you come off and you're you're trying to write notes and think about what you've just seen and whether you like any players and you almost find yourself creating a a narrative around a player in your head before you have to shake yourself and think, well, he didn't do anything, though, and mm-hmm. he didn't show what we're looking for him to show. So on the basis of that game, it would be a no. But it might be that the centre half is showing you great recovery pace to, to recover back towards his own goal and make a good challenge cleanly and come out with the ball. Or a central midfielder has shown that he can take the ball in the half turn, play the next pass, make a move to deceive. And all these little things can flash in a game, regardless of where you're watching in the world. You just have to know what you're looking for. Yeah. Lee, thank you so much for coming on the podcast again. You can be found on Twitter at FM Analysis, I believe. Yeah, that's right. And you can also find Lee Scott on LinkedIn. To all the listeners at home, I hope you enjoyed as well. Make sure to tune in on Monday for another episode of the TFA Scouted Podcast, where we will be discussing a highly rated Nigerian centre forward ripping it up in Europe right now. And no, it's not the one you're thinking of. Also, make sure to rate the podcast too and share it with your followers, friends and family, as it really helps us to grow. Thank you all for listening and goodbye for now.